1: Right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 533 for the week of Monday, October 21st, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. NASA's back in business,
2: and so are we. Can't wait to get started.
1: Looking forward to it as well, and welcome well, Mark Rademan.
0: <laughs> I'm ready. Let's go.
1: All right, let's get right back into it and speaking of getting back into it, NASA's back
2: right gene yes yeah, sir that's right uh back on uh October seventeenth uh things got kind of sort of straightened out over here with uh the federal government and so on and NASA came back online uh and uh they had a uh some nice uh, thank you uh uh, tweets to fire out on twitter at least and i'm going to quote one of them here quote thanks to the five million plus who follow us and to those who filled in with uh hashtag things nasa might tweet while we're while we were out now it's hashtag things nasa, NASA can tweet uh, nasa's back and uh, rolling up their sleeves and and getting back to work the uh, Cygnus spacecraft uh, is leaving the ISS. In fact, it leaves tomorrow. So it's Monday, October 21 as we record this and uh, uh, the, the Cygnus spacecraft, which has been there since, uh, oh good Lord, since late late September is going to be leaving um, the ISS. The hatches between G. David Lowe and the International Space Station were closed at about 6:42 uh, 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 a.m today and uh, the Cygnus has been filled up with all kinds of items that no longer are needed on board the ISS and will be released uh, by Canada Arm 2 tomorrow at about 7.30 in the morning, uh, Eastern Daylight Time. Yes, I'm being the naughty bad American, I'm sorry. The next activity for the good ship G. David Lowe will be on Wednesday. It will fire its engines for the final time at around... uh, one, according to uh, the NASA website here, at about 1.41 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time, and uh, then re-enter the Earth's atmosphere uh, over uh, the Pacific Ocean. Um, yeah, I mean, this has so far been a, been a really good mission for for, uh, for Orbital Sciences and for the Cygnus spacecraft. Uh, it has one final d- duty to perform, which is to go ahead and, again, sort of... <laughs> plot its own demise, but uh, after that, um, in I believe in December, uh, there's going to be another launch out of Wallops Island uh, for the Cygnus spacecraft, and uh, this is going to be a pretty quick turnaround, and uh, this will be the very first official paying run for, uh, for Cygnus. Also, um, another vehicle, uh, the uh, Albert Einstein, the uh, automated transfer vehicle number four, Uh, the penultimate uh, uh, ATV in the series, the International Space Station, Uh, that will occur, I believe, October 28th. And, of course, NASA television is going to be uh, carrying uh, coverage of that live. Uh, That is 4.45 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Monday the twenty eighth. So, it's going to be a, a very busy time on the ISS. Things haven't slowed down because of the the, the government shutdown, and uh, now that NASA's back in business, things are are really really accelerating uh, up there. So, going to be a busy day time for the ISS, and we'll be uh, watching this with uh, great interest back here on Earth.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much going on. And it is amazing that even though the ATV is coming to an end in terms of its current planned run for resupply, there's still so many other vehicles coming in now. Because when the ATV was created, obviously the shuttle was still flying. But even since then, now you've got Cygnus with Orbital, which we talked about, and even SpaceX with their Dragon. Because, I mean, the big difference, especially between ATV and Cygnus and all those, and SpaceX and it's one similarity to the shuttle, is is that it does have the capability to return things. And in fact, on its next flight, um, it's going to be bringing up, a record for it, three different freezers. Uh, one Glacier freezer and two Merlin freezers. And that next flight is the big news of its announcement. Uh, they announced that the next flight of SpaceX's Dragon will be no earlier than February 11th, 2014. If you recall, part of the original plan was possibly for it to be at the end of the year, but then that was pushed into early 2014, and the current, no earlier than date, is February 11th. Of course, the big thing with this one that we're talking about here, with CRS-3, as it's called, is that we're looking at the first one of the Dragon capsules that will be launched on the new Falcon 9.1. Or... Uh, I've got so many names for it at this point.
2: Yeah, the uh, the, the interesting thing about um, the, the the next dragonfly it was actually supposed to be, I believe, during the summer, and then it got pushed into the fall, and then it got pushed back even further. And I think I, the, the reason why, again, was uh, the Falcon 1.1. 1. 1, uh, I believe SpaceX wanted to go ahead and make sure that that vehicle was in ship shape and, and make sure that they had uh, the new booster uh pretty much intact. Also too, um, I think part of that too was to test the, uh, the fairing and um, the, uh, the new way that they have the fairing opening up. I believe there's a sort of a helium cartridge that kind of bursts the, uh, the fairing open and make sure to make sure that the, that the fairing, you know, kind of sort of separates and blows away from, from the, Excuse me from the booster, uh, pretty much you know very very rapidly, and in, in, basically and ensures that the that the cargo that it's delivering or the satellite it's delivering is uh, uh, you know free and clear of the uh, of the fairing, so I thought that was you know an ingenious uh, deal with SpaceX there
1: oh yeah, what they're doing is crazy, including with their Grasshopper, which completed a pretty big test once again um, a couple weeks ago. Um, It did an 80-second test where the Grasshopper went up uh, 745 meters-ish in altitude, hovered, and then returned back and landed again. And um, This is going to be in preparation for the Falcon 9 version 1.1, which will be called Falcon 9 R or the Falcon 9 reusable as they continue preparing that in the near future. Uh, The tests that have been going on have been in Texas and eventually they'll work their way up from a developed vehicle to high altitude testing eventually in New Mexico. And if all goes according to plan, they may actually try putting some landing legs that you would see on the Grasshopper on the fourth. Falcon 9 version 1.1 launch, which will be CRS-3 and Dragon. They aren't doing it for the next two because, A, the Falcon 9 1.1 is still relatively new with one successful flight under its belt, and, 2, they said that, hey, you know, we've got our customers and we want to give them the best rockets, so, you know, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it to their own cargo rather than someone else who's paying them lots of money. Especially after the last test of the sort of Return to Earth-style booster on the first one.
2: Yeah, I was hoping, Sawyer, you'd bring that one up because I'm kind of sort of scratching my head a little bit about what really, really went on with that. First, to to just really um, kind of sort of put the punctuation mark on Grasshopper, I believe the current Grasshopper rig that they've been using, and sorry, the one that you just mentioned that went about, uh, you know, uh, was it almost a little over... Uh, uh, twenty four hundred feet. Um, that test rig is going to be retired, I believe, and they're actually going to be building a you know a new test rig to go ahead and and continue the the the, the grasshopper concept, if you will. But um, Sawyer, so, again, if you could go ahead and, and talk a little bit about um, the the launch out of Vandenberg, because I'm uh, there was some really interesting stuff going on with that. <laughs> Yeah,
1: so after the last one, uh, the plan was that the first stage was going to fire its engines. It wasn't going to have the landing legs. It wasn't planning on landing on land, but that it was supposed to come back down, fire its engines to slow it down, and then splash into the ocean. Well, splash into the ocean, all right, Um, but not as smooth as they were hoping. Uh, To quote Elon Musk, quote, the first stage hit the water relatively hard. The most important thing is that we now believe we have all the pieces of the puzzle for recovery. And uh, another quote from him, we have all of the pieces necessary to achieve a full recovery of the boost stage, which makes it sound like, yeah, it might have hit the water hard, broken into some pieces possibly. Basically, it sounds like it didn't go well.
2: What I love is the way they're spinning it. You know, they're, they're making it sound like it was an unequivocal success, when in reality it may not have gone as well as as they hoped. But um either way, you did learn something from it, and you can take it back with you and go to the next step and learn from that. You know, and again, there is no harm. By the way, just you know, for the record. Even if things didn't go as well and, you know, things didn't go as planned and that's happened with how many shuttle flights where, you know, something has has not worked or something has not, you know, the the crew had to improvise. I mean, I mean, it's it's gone on since the beginning of, of the space program where something has not kind of. You know, where you had to think on your feet and kind of sort of say, okay, this didn't work. Time to think of plan B and 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 do something to make it all work. And you find out that, hey, guess what? You know, we did learn something along the way. So there's no harm in saying, you know, gosh, darn it, this didn't work. And I kind of wish they would somebody over there would realize that. Because he oh. said
1: that technically it, it did it did work kind of, again, to quote all this coming from nasaspaceflight.com, quote, if you take the grasshopper tests where we were able to do a precision takeoff and landing of a Falcon 9 first stage, and you combine it with the results from this flight, where we were able to successfully transition from vacuum to hypersonic, through supersonic, through transonic, and light the engines all the way through and control the stage all the way through. I mean, from that quote, they did what they kind of wanted it to do, it just didn't splash down as gently as they hoped
2: well and again that's fine you know if if that means okay fine we learned something you know that's the point (laughs) that's just it you go forward you you pick up your pieces you know so to speak you learn from it and you go off and you fly again you know you take what you learned you you make the vehicle better and you go fly again period then there's no harm in saying hey it didn't quite work out the way we wanted it to
0: i got to wonder if I've been asleep in class and missed something because I don't get it. If you've got enough rocket to launch and then bring yourself back down and land why not just use that rocket for a bigger payload going up and forget about the coming downy part. I, I wonder if SpaceX hasn't come up with uh, some way of beating the shuttle for misestimating what they're going to accomplish.
2: Mark, I'm sure as heck glad you said that because that's been that, that's been in my in the back of my mind too. I've kind of wondered, you know, this whole thing about reusability. I kind of think that we well, I don't want to say miss the bus, but it, I mean, it didn't shuttle kind of sort of teach us something? The whole idea behind reusability was that we launched a lot. And I think maybe that's what SpaceX is hoping to do, where you're launching a lot of satellites. But And that's the only way you're going to make reusability work and make it you know, pay for itself, is to launch a lot. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, but I just don't see that kind of launch rate. Somebody needs to uh, again, and I'm like you, Mark. Somebody needs to take me to the clue store. I don't. Well, s- I, I just don't understand the business
0: case. It, maybe it works. Maybe the business case is there, but uh, I wonder if if we were to look at the shuttle and say that okay, we we built an external tank. We put a lot of a lot of trouble into improving it and modifying it later on after Columbia. The uh, the SRBs. We reused them. In fact, on the final shuttle mission, there was a booster segment that flew on STS-1. Um, You know, but there's a a question that I would be interested in. Did that still make financial sense? Don't know. Uh, Be interested to hear more about SpaceX, but I guess it'll be the proof overall of their success and whether they continue with it.
2: Agreed.
1: Absolutely agreed. Exactly, because, I mean, going back to the shuttle example, you think you have to include everything. You have to include the cost of recovery, bringing it back, refurbishing it, and transport, not only just from the ocean back to land, but from Florida all the way back to Utah and Utah back to Florida. So, you know, we'll see, especially if it's, you know, we're talking Pacific Ocean or even the Atlantic out of Kennedy all the way back to texas or new mexico or any of their facilities who knows but you know it'll be interesting to see in the future because grasshopper it's makes some pretty cool videos from you know a tri-rotor and quad-rotor helicopter but uh we'll see if it actually becomes viable
2: yeah that that was i mean i I remember uh, um but heck i remember gina hurley when she when she was with us here kind of saying, well, it makes for great space porn, but that's, you know, she just didn't understand the concept. And and Mark, again, you're, you're alluding to the same thing. And I'm still trying to get a hold of the business case for, for for a reusable booster. The only way I see reusability working is if you plan on launching a heck of a lot. And and I guess SpaceX plans to do that. That's the only only thing I can come up with.
1: We'll see how SpaceX does with that, but I know that there's another company that's talking about their reusable vehicle that has a test coming up, and I believe that's Sierra Nevada,
2: right? That's correct, Sawyer. According to nasaspaceflight.com, Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser, which essentially is a little um, baby shuttle, it uh, it, uh, used to be called the HL-20, it was a NASA concept. Uh, that was looked at uh, back in the uh, the uh, early 1990s, and unfortunately, it was uh, not uh, to be a, be a NASA vehicle. But uh, uh, Sierra Nevada picked up the concept and is now trying to sell it under the, uh, the the plans of CCI Cap, and it is going to be ready for its big day sometime quote this week close quote. Um, now, the dream chaser has flown twice before uh, but it's hooked up it's been hooked up uh, by a cable um, and these next flights will be I believe um, the, the the drop tests sort of analogous to the 1977 drop tests of the uh, prototype orbiter enterprise um, and uh, uh, this is going to see if uh, if the Dream Chaser can glide down to a nice landing at uh, at uh, uh, the Dryden uh, uh, Flight Research Center center out there, and we'll just see how it all goes. But I'm going to be watching this with with uh, great anticipation because, again, it, it you know I, I know I know for a fact that um, you know we, we've we've got three companies vying for the right to fly. Crew to the ISS, um, Boeing CST-100, um, of course the piloted version of the uh, of the Dragon, and uh, but I think the sentimental favorite out there, because of its design and because it harkens back to uh, the Space Shuttle, is this vehicle. Um, not only that, this I think in my eyes this vehicle is has a little bit more flexibility. Uh, in that it's using green fuels and can land just about, a, you know, I believe uh, at uh, any long runway conventional airports. So um, it, it's, it, I think there's a little bit more flexibility there. Uh, it also was designed to carry seven crew, just like the the, the others. So, but it, I'm going to be watching this with some real great interest, and and uh, really really crossing my fingers for Sierra Nevada, and and hopefully that this this plan actually works out, and and everything goes well in the coming days, and the whole concept is is proven. So I'm, I'm looking forward to to seeing those uh, seeing the drop tests on this.
1: Oh yeah, it brings me back to a vehicle that I have a close connection to, and that's Space Shuttle Enterprise. You know, the original drop test back in the '70s. That's all I could think of. So,
2: I'm um, yeah, exactly. actually looking forward to this. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, st- I'm look, I'm looking at my, uh, uh <laughs> in fact, I'm, I've got the, uh, uh, the patch for that flight right now, I'm hanging on onto it, uh, you know, just, just off my jacket here, so. Again, I'm, uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and hoping this works because again, it's, it's really been, this vehicle is, is kind of sort of a, uh, a sentimental favorite with a lot of people out there because of its shuttle connections. So again, go, you know, go dream chaser and good luck to, to the, uh, the folks over at uh, Sierra Nevada.
1: Exactly. And by the way, what you're saying, I've got a picture of enterprise on top of NASA 905 from last year that I'm looking at right now too. And, uh. We'll see, we've had two pretty good tests so far of the Dream Chaser with Captive Carry, and we'll see how this one goes. So, best of luck to Dream Chaser and everyone over at Sierra Nevada. Alrighty, so that brings us to the end of round number one, and we got a lot covered in round number one, especially when it comes to private space. So, um, let's move on to some more public stuff in round number two, and we'll start things off
2: with Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. Uh, there was a lot of uh, static about this particular story on Twitter over the weekend, and I just wanted to just bring it up because, again, it's kind of sort of one of my, uh, uh, well, just one of my interests. Uh, this involves a near-Earth asteroid that was discovered by uh, some astronomers working at the Crimean Astrophysical Institute in in the Ukraine, I believe it was discovered back uh, according to the NASA website on October eighth. Um, it has been dubbed twenty thirteen TV one thirty five, and it's going to be making a close It made a uh, close approach to Earth um, around September sixteenth. It came within about. Uh, um, 4.2 million miles or 6.7 million kilometers of here. Um, it's about maybe 1,300 feet or about 400 meters in size. And um, its orbit, the preliminary orbit that's been calculated, it carries um, the, the object uh, past the orbit of Jupiter and as
0: close
2: to the sun as Earth's orbit. Um now this is only coming within about a week's observations but uh, the static on twitter about it was that you know is this going to be the golden bb and all of this that is going to hit the earth well um uh, the asteroid's cuz the asteroid's due to swing back this way about around 2032 um however according to nasa's uh, near earth object program it's the the its office states that the probability that the asteroid could impact Earth is only one in sixty three thousand, and um, the object, you know, as it as it approaches here would be easily uh, observable. Um, but uh, it's it's not going to go ahead and hit, hit us. In fact, uh, Don Yeomans, the manager of uh, NASA's Near Earth Object Program, over at uh, Uh, The Jet Propulsion Laboratory in in California said that, quote, to put it another way, uh, that puts the current probability of no impact in the year 2032 at about 99.998%. So... um, To continue, he said this is a relatively new discovery with more observations, I fully expect, that we'll be able to significantly reduce or rule out any type of impact entirely for the foreseeable future. So again, guys, this isn't the the golden BB. Don't worry, this is not going to hit us. It's not going to make a mess of things here. Uh, and I'm sorry for the, the lunatic, the, you know, I, I, and please forgive me, everybody. I'm sorry for the lunatic fringe Nibru crowd. This isn't, uh, that world either. It's not going to hit us. Um, so don't worry about it. Go to sleep. Don't cash in your retirement, you know, just, just chill out. Everything's going to be fine for this one. But, uh, again, it made the rounds on Twitter and everybody was like, you know, Just, you know, there was a lot of couple news reports there. I noticed that um, uh, the New York Post here characterized this as a potentially dangerous asteroid. It's not. Um, Again, as as reported by uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you know, don't hold on to your hats. Don't, you know, there's no need to do anything. And um, so just chill on this one, guys. It's not that important. However, there are, you know, there's still... You know stuff out there that we don't know about and uh, uh it's it's still good to have a good situational awareness of what's going on out there and um we do have organizations out there that are also doing doing some uh, some homework as well not only nasa's jet propulsion laboratory at keeping an eye on things called uh, the b612 foundation is also kind of sort of keeping an eye on things out there in fact we've had uh uh, Rusty Schweikert on here on this program talking about B six twelve and uh, hopefully we'll be talking more about them in the future here. So uh, uh, again, don't worry about uh, two thousand thirteen TV one thirty five. It's you know a flash in the pan. If if you get to see it, enjoy the view. But um, uh, don't worry about it, guys. This isn't going to hurt us. <laughs>
1: All right, so one last asteroid that isn't going to kill us. Yay! Because <laughs> it seems like, you know, that's what everyone talks about a lot lately is all these scary things. And, you know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I can't believe Twitter went crazy over this.
2: Yeah, the, the it, it, story so it was kind of funny over the weekend. It, it got a lot of airplay on Twitter. And I, I just saw this and I was like, okay, I think i got a topic for this week. Um, it, it just a lot of people were were firing articles about it. A lot of folks that uh, don't normally fire about flight were firing articles about this. And, um, I was like, yeah, I got to, you know, NASA already put this, this particular article out, uh, saying that, uh, uh, you know, let's set the record straight. Let's do this reality check before everybody goes kind of, you know, full goose bonkers on this thing. And, uh, uh I, just wanted to go out there and and do the same thing. Don't worry. This is just not going to be the golden BB. You know, you know, no need to, to uh, sell the, uh, the house and all that. Don't worry about it. Things are fine.
1: Oh, don't sell the house. Um, I'll be right back. (laughs) Alrighty then, so good to know we're not all going to die because of that asteroid. We'll keep watching for others though. Alrighty then, so we're going to move on to Mark and another heavenly body.
0: Well, I've got a story for you that actually relates back to a previous guest on Talking Space, and I'll mention him first, and that was Brian Shiro uh, on Twitter. It's B R I A N S H I R O. And Brian, when one of the things that we talked about with him back, uh, oh, three years, three and a half years ago, was about his experience with FMARS and MDRS. And if I'm throwing acronyms at you that you don't know exactly what this is, check out the marssociety.org. Now, FMARS is the Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station at Devon Island in Canada, it's 75 degrees north, it's 900 miles from the North Pole. It's adjacent to a 20-kilometer uh, meteor impact crater in the midst of a polar desert that's known to represent one of the most Mars-like environments on Earth. Now, what's coming up is something sponsored by the Mars Society. It's called Mars Arctic 365, MA365. And their plan is to simulate a one-year Mars human surface exploration mission at this F Mars facility. Now the crew is gonna conduct during this year long, year long. Oh and by the way, the weather right now at Devon Island, uh, it's about 19 degrees Fahrenheit which would be in the neighborhood of minus 7 Celsius. So this, and that's not even winter. They're going to conduct a year-long program of field exploration and they're going to be under some of the same constraints as an actual Mars mission. They're going to learn a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Now they're going to also be dealing with the stresses from isolation like the Mars 500 crew experienced and also the cold, the danger, the hard work, and a need to achieve some real scientific results. Nothing like this has ever been done before. Now you gotta admit, I remember talking to astronauts and talking to them about their time in flight training in the T-38, and they said it makes you focus. He said you make mistakes, you can get yourself killed. He said so you really work on working together as a crew with the the pilot, co-pilot, whoever's riding with you, your mission specialist, and it gives you a focus. And that's what this Flashline Mars, this MA-365 is going to accomplish. Now back in the summertime they had a crew that left from uh, a jump-off point in Idaho, and they went to F-Mars, and they did some uh, refurbishment, because the facility hasn't been used since 2009. They revived a couple of diesel generators that were on site. They took delivery of a new... Carnot diesel generator purchased courtesy of the Association Planete Mars. That's the French chapter of the Mars Society. So now they got three working diesel generators as well as a backup gasoline generator. They reactivated a satellite inter- internet communication system. They tested a new satellite phone system, donated, keep that word in mind, donated by Iridium they got a brand new large powerful four-wheel drive atv capable of hauling payloads across the rough terrain provided at a sharp discount by arctic cat and they also got an atv trailer Uh, they said the structural condition of the fmars facility was found to be in excellent shape they did some reactivation of electrical water waste disposal systems they got a new induction cooking range they assessed the food supplies that were on site most were found to be good and the rest were disposed of they also built a, uh, a, a berm, an embanked area to contain diesel fuel in the event that there would be a spill. So they built this, this bermed area for the stockpiles of fuel that they will have. They also opened up two new airstrips and that gives them redundancy for landings, uh, air, you know, aircraft support, you know, during times when the weather can be considerably variable. And, uh, Having a runway that lines up with your predominant winds can make a difference between whether you get somebody in to help you out or whether you have to wait several weeks or longer. Um, They also put in a new weather station for climate research and support emission operations. They got a large amount of equipment from U.S. and Canadian suppliers that was transported to Resolute Bay, where it will be stored over the winter for rapid deployment to FMARs in July of 2014. And their next trip to FMARs, Will be to complete preparation of this facility for their historic one year expedition. They're looking for people to contribute, uh, people that want to sponsor this effort. There is also, believe it or not, a call for volunteers. They're looking for six volunteers to participate as members of the crew of the uh, Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station during this extended stay, which they show as being August 2014 through July of 2015. The skills that they're looking for is people that have background as a field scientist in areas such as geology, geochemistry, microbiology, biochemistry, and paleontology. This isn't just going to be a bunch of people, you know, walking around on the ice for the winter wintertime. They've, they've got some scientific objectives and they feel like that this is a good analog to an actual exploration of another planet. So I think this is kind of interesting. Uh, they they do want people to support them, and uh, part of that can be watching what's going on and get the word out. Tell people that, that you know about it. And you may find somebody that's just fascinated by this. I know that when we talked to Brian Shiro, talking about the MDRS, the uh, Mars Desert Research Station, and this FMARS, that uh, to me it was absolutely phenomenal. And then following along where a crew went to these facilities and spent... I forget what the time frame was. I think it was close to, I want to say a neighborhood of three weeks. It was quite a, quite a good time. Um, and where they suit up in a spacesuit and they go outside and they do their, uh, their geology or whatever it is that they're, they're set to accomplish on a particular move outside the habitat. They don't just go in and out. They actually treated it, uh, I believe, MDRS. They actually used an airlock. And uh you know, it was kinda kinda interesting. I hope you find this interesting and if you want to take a look at it further, Marssociety.org. Hey Mark, so that they're they're using this
2: facility as sort of an analog for a Mars base if I'm if I'm not mistaken this correctly. Is there any call for for anybody with any technical skills you know in case like say oh i don't know the generator breaks down or something like that where you know you could be a paleontologist is fine but a paleontologist might not know how to fix a generator
0: well yeah and actually i didn't read quite far enough on the call for volunteers they're looking for four uh, science People and two additional crew will be chosen primarily for their skills in engineering areas. Uh, The ability of the crew members to support both roles is considered a strong plus. So they got to take care of themselves. They got to take care of their generators. They got to take care of their water, their electrical systems. They got to take care of their waste disposal. They got to take care of the facility itself in a very hostile environment. If you wonder where this is, go to Greenland and then hang a left. Okay? It is. It's it, It's hard for me to imagine what it's like and how far away it is from what we would consider civilization. So they got to be able to take care of themselves just like they would if they were on the red planet.
1: Wow, thank you, Mark. And definitely go check that out. So now uh, it comes to me to finish off round number two. And um, actually, no, I think I'm going to delay round two. Alright, maybe not. Maybe I'm not going to delay it, but there are a couple of rocket launches that have been delayed. Uh, One of them is a Minotaur launch that had to stop its preparations because of, you guessed it, the government shutdown. So it did end up making a big effect on something, and there was a Minotaur 1 that is now targeting a mid-November launch from Virginia's eastern shore. Um, On a technology demonstration mission, which will carry up 29 satellites. That's a lot of satellites, huh? But uh, the original liftoff date was scheduled for November 4th, but due to the government shutdown, they had to stop preparations for it since October 1st. And instead, the launch from pad 0B at the Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia is now postponed until mid-November. So, it's looking currently for November 19th. Now, there's another one that was also scheduled that is going to have to be delayed a little bit. But this one is not because of the government shutdown. This one is a result of an investigation. And that next one is supposed to be the launch of a Delta IV. The launch was supposed to be October 23rd. However, a report just came back from a previous launch which had an issue with one of the RL-10 engines. After getting the research back from that, they decided to postpone it, and they're deciding whether they need to make any changes to it or not after a Delta IV launch of a different GPS satellite than the one that this is supposed to launch back in October of 2012, where the engine sprung a fuel leak causing the engine to fire with lower thrust than planned. The rocket ended up compensating for it, and it successfully deployed the satellites, but it was still on issue nonetheless. So the next launch date, still not entirely sure yet because there may be some range conflicts coming up, but we shall see. All righty then, so that brings us to the end of round number two. And we're ready to move on to our final round. And for this, we will go back to Mark and back to
0: Mars. So if all that talk from me just a bit ago about this ma-365 mars simulation really got you kind of tired out i've got something else that might interest you instead this is from the nasa innovative advanced concepts program and back a couple months ago they announced their 2013 awards now what that means is that they have 12 phase one awards and six new phase two awards Phase 1 participants receive $100,000 for one year for their study. Phase 2 will receive approximately $500,000 for two years. The purpose of this is to advance some innovative aerospace concepts and help NASA achieve some future goals. Now the point of all this is one of the awards was for Spaceworks Engineering. It's a division of Spaceworks Enterprises and what they have is an idea and the, well the name of their proposal is torpor induced torpor inducing transfer habitat for human stasis to mars so you know i was going to get around to mars eventually what they've got is the idea not of suspended animation cuz we're not quite there yet but there has been some advancements in being able to induce a deep sleep state in other words torpor with significantly reduced metabolic rates for humans over an extended period of time. Now this study is for them to look at this and to see if there's a way that NASA could leverage this as a way to get a crew to Mars. Now one of the advantages is that the habitat for the en route six-month travel that we've talked about so many times the habitat could be significantly smaller. They're talking about a crew habitat uh, for the flight to Mars of being uh, 5 to 7 metric tons for a crew of 4 to 6 individuals, compared to 20 to 50 metric tons that they currently estimate would be needed. The interior volume would be on the order of 20 cubic meters compared to 200 cubic meters for most of the current designs. The human stasis option will then be compared with various design reference architectures to quantify the impact and merits of the approach. In other words, this is a way of trying something, see what they can come up with for a design, see where they end up with for the hardware and the feasibility of of the actual construction of something like this, and whether it would work. Kind of neat. I think I'll uh, take a nap now and wake me up in six months and we'll go explore.
2: I remember reading something about about this concept, Mark, and I thought the whole thing was just like, wow. I mean, I know we're not at a level where, you know, we're looking at suspended animation, you know, a la, you know, 2001 or something like that, but uh, this could theoretically be a precursor to that. And the whole idea of just taking a snooze, going out to Mars, you know, you may not need a lot of, you know, obviously you're not going to need the, the foodstuffs. You're not going to need a lot of, um, you know, you're not going to be using all all the all the oxygen you normally would be using and so on. So I'm wondering, too, if, if that would, would actually be, you know, if NASA is really seriously looking into this. All
0: right think it'd be an advantage because the crew alone would probably be excited they wouldn't have to spend near as much time wiping down the handrails and doing uh, housekeeping work
2: exactly well there wouldn't be a lot of mold running around because we wouldn't be running around you know um it it, it would just be kind of it it it, it, talk about you know you want to talk about cost savings yeah because you're not going to you don't need to bring the supply you know you don't need to bring half the supplies you would you would if if the crew was, was was conscious, but but wow! I mean, I guess that would also you'd also have to have a an autonomous spacecraft, pretty much.
0: Yeah, of course we got that now. We got all kinds of spacecraft flying all over the place that are controlled by uh, ground station and by automation on board.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, you'd have to have to uh, the the ground would be flying the ship for the most part, but uh, wow, this is. Talk about a breakthrough! This is going to be interesting. Why does this movie Genesis Two come to mind? I, I just I just remember that was the concept, but um, it, it was it was kind of I, I love what you're talking about. This is this is really interesting.
0: You don't think of NASA as uh, heading off in in what we might have called science fiction, you know, very recently, but here they go, mm-hmm. and and these other 17 uh, selections for this N I A C program. There is all kinds of interesting stuff there. Uh, and presumably at this point, they're all getting the opportunity to get back to work.
2: Exactly. And uh, you're talking about science, you know, fiction becoming science fact. If you're reading a science fiction book and you're saying, well, when is this going to happen? The way things are going, wow, wait 10 minutes. Fascinating concept, Mark. It's, it's now on my radar and I'm going to have to have to do watch this as it it grows up.
1: Yes, indeed. I think we all are. And thank you, Mark. Great stories tonight. Alrighty then. So, now we're going to wiggle our way on over to Gene to (laughs) talk about
2: some interesting creatures. Yeah, well, NASA, this is, I'm looking at a at a uh, popular science article but uh, there were a few other uh, news outlets that were talking about this. Uh, Back in the 1990s, uh, NASA decided it was going to go ahead and send jellyfish up to uh, low Earth orbit on the shuttle. Uh, I believe the first batch of jellyfish flew on, according to uh, the article here on Popular Science, uh, flew on board Space Shuttle Columbia in uh, the early 1990s just to see what would happen to um, newborn jellyfish and how they would develop. I think they were looking at the jellyfish as sort of an analog, as as a human analog to see how the jellyfish would form and, you know, sort of how they would evolve up in space and what their reactions to things down here would be. Well, um, the uh, the jellyfish kind of use... Uh, the other reason why I think think the jellyfish were selected is because they use almost the same type of um, system for balance as – excuse me, as we do. Um, they use these uh, calcium crystals that, that we have in, in our, our inner ear, um, which kind of move hair cells around and tell our brains um, which way gravity is pulling, essentially. So – if the jellyfish have problems in that area we might too if especially if a child is born in space we might have an you know that child if it ever returns to earth might have you know equilibrium problems when it returns here and may have permanent problems we don't know well the jellyfish that were born on board shuttle when they came back they didn't like earth all that much they were um actually having issues uh orienting and and so on and and their brains were kind of not you know firing on all cylinders if you were if you will as far as trying to figure out where they were and 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 so on And i think think the relationship between these crystals that you know would theoretically be in our our ears and the the the, the where the, the the jellyfish crystals are and i believe um there, you know, are along the sides there. Um, they just had problems trying to figure out where they were, how they were swimming, and so on. So I'm wondering, and this leads to be the next question, you know, if the jellyfish that were born in space were having problems swimming around and orientating themselves and trying to figure out where the heck they were and so on, would a, you know, a baby human that was born in in microgravity conditions uh, have the same issues if it were to return here to earth. And that kind of opens the door to a lot of, a lot of things. So I I just found this and I was like, huh? So if we do become a spacefaring civilization, we might need gravity. (laughs) Um, you know, there, there might need to have sort of a rotating, uh, spacecraft or a rotating, system uh to maintain some level of gravity in order for you know a uh uh, a human being to evolve properly this might be an indicator that 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 might be required on future missions so um i thought i thought it was quite fascinating i'll throw this out to the table and, and see if anybody else got any thoughts on it
1: Other than the fact that I'm kind of jealous of those jellyfish that get to just hang out in space. But, I I mean, it's really interesting because you can even see the effects that it has on, you know, long-term spaceflight. And that's something that we've been studying a lot. And, you know, we've got the year-long mission coming on the International Space Station. And... A lot of the times you see the difficulty of going into space and, and the adjustment of getting, you know, used to zero G and then returning back to Earth and the six weeks of physical therapy, you know, if you're doing a six month stay to just to try and get some of the muscle tone back and some of the bone density back. And yet here are these little jellyfish, which don't really have the same bone structure, don't have the same structure as a human body. And yet they're experiencing something extremely similar of just the difficulty of readjusting back to Earth. And I find it amazing that, you know, different species have the same reaction of uh, returning from space and having to readjust to gravity. I I think that's just an amazing scientific discovery. And I'd love to see if this is true with more uh, different types of animals.
2: Yeah, true. Um, It should be kind of interesting to to see that. I'm wondering if if they're going to follow. There's no indication that that they're going to follow up uh this this set of experiments with other animals or not but uh again it's just not the not just the vestibular system that uh kind of sort of needs to reacclimate itself to microgravity i mean so you brought up a few other other things muscle tone and and things of that nature uh the one thing i'm thinking about is is eyesight apparently that's affected too and we don't really understand why so uh, there's still a lot of mysteries that we're going to have to solve, and uh, uh, to to go further out uh, into uh, into the void, if we really want to. And um, ISS, I hope, is going to be on at the forefront of uh, of trying to solve those uh, those issues.
1: Exactly. You know, we think a lot of the study of biology and space, and you don't think of the biology of other creatures, too. Because, I mean, we've done experiments with, you know, seeing how spiders create webs. We've talked about that on the show, and how um, flying animals are able to fly and get around in space, and fish even. And it's interesting going from that in space to seeing what it's like back on Earth. And I definitely hope they do more studies on this, because I can see this not only being beneficial for other creatures, but for you know the effects on the human body as well in the future so good job science
2: speaking of good jobs sawyer to close out the show you've got really quite an explosive story in more ways than one (laughs) and you gotta share this i mean when when you when we were doing the pre-show earlier i was i my jaw dropped when when you you were describing this thing so uh, go for it please by all means
1: well, thankfully, it's explosive only in, you know, content rather than actual explosives, which it could have been, because this was the story that I saw last week uh, after we'd already recorded the previous show, and this was before it made it its way onto Gizmodo. Uh, a person named Brennan Moore posted this story, and uh, it's about his grandfather who had just passed away the previous week and at the service was asked to say a few words and read from his memoirs. The one that he chose was about an interesting experience with the Saturn V because he was an engineer who worked out the cape for the Apollo program, and he was working on the date of November 9th, 1967, which, if you might recall, was the launch date of Apollo 4, the first unmanned Saturn V launch, and this is William Moore, by the way, is the person who was the engineer, and it's an amazing read. I'm going to summarize it, but... A summary cannot do this article justice. It's absolutely an amazing story. So he was one of five people who were on the red team. And the red team was basically there, if anything happened, that they would go down and fix it. And they were specifically the red team for the electrical systems. They were sitting around waiting for it, sitting about three miles away, and then all of a sudden they heard a situation going on on the net that they weren't getting a response from an electrical circuit that controlled the separation of, of the S2 and the S1C stage, which is kind of important. And, of course, that happened to be one of his main circuits. And so they got a call saying, you know, what's going on? What do you think this could be? And they took a look at the blueprints and thought that it might be a relay switch. And so they're like, okay, we think it's a relay problem. And uh, they said, how sure are you? They're like, we're really sure. They're like, are you going? are you willing to risk yourself going out to the pad to go fix this? And this is my favorite response that he said, quote, just don't let them launch this mother till we're at least halfway back from the pad, okay? So about 30 minutes later, the team of five made their way out to the pad and just, it was 1130 at night and hearing their experience of just going up to the Saturn V. With it breathing, full of fuel, explaining it coming to life almost. The noise, how deafening it was. They couldn't communicate with each other. Getting inside the vehicle and then seeing all of these, you know, valves popping open and hearing all of the creaking and all of the nitrogen fog with the dim red glow from the emergency lights. It's just, the visuals are amazing. The smell of kerosene with a touch of burnt paint and rubber, as he described. And uh, as he put it, he was glad the astronauts did not take that path to board the Saturn V because, quote, my goosebumps were changing to a weird color of purple. <laughs> so uh, basically, they realized they did not want to be trapped in a space like that, especially recalling a previous test which had happened of that exact part where they were, of that stage where they had tested it and it exploded. And that was the reasoning behind why most of the buildings were three miles away, because the explosion destroyed buildings within a three-mile radius. And here they were within 25 feet, and then inside of it, fully fueled as well. So they went inside, hurried up, signed the paperwork, and got out of there as fast as possible without any more sightseeing, as he put it. Uh, To quote the ending, quote, The drive back to the ready room was very fast and uneventful. The five of us were like stone figures, thinking about where we had been and what we had just accomplished, what could have happened and what didn't. All of this without ever realizing that this experience was as close to being in the shoes of a Saturn V astronaut as any of us would ever be again. Close quote. It's an amazing read. Link in the description. Please read this. It is phenomenal.
2: Sorry, I can't thank you enough for finding this, number one. Uh, Because it's just one of those little moments, you know, slice of life pieces of history. Uh, that that one finds i remember hearing a story i I almost want to say it was von braun or or kurt debus or one of these guys um doing this something similar to the same thing but this was launching explorer one and this was just simply with one of the redstone rockets this wasn't anything you know to the same caliber of a saturn V. Um, where one would just kind of sort of look under the engine panel with this thing kind of sort of fully fueled and say, yeah, it looks good. And you walk away, you know, with this thing steaming and bubbling and boiling and it, to talk to, with with astronauts and, 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 and pad workers that were at, you know, working with shuttle or working with, with, with the Saturn five or working with other vehicles they kind of, Say that the thing kind of makes this these hissing and breathing noises it it makes you really really think that this this you know large beast is alive but I'm just thinking you're talking about something the size of the statue of liberty you know just just doing all of these 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 you know hissing noises and so on and it's fully fueled you're talking about the believe the um the Saturn excuse me, had, had the, the capability of at least a couple of megaton blast if it, if it exploded. Um, I mean, you really, that that took a lot of guts in plain English. So hats off to the, this gentleman for, for, you know, number one, making, you know, making a, a critical step to the moon possible. And, and he's one of the unsung heroes of the Apollo program. So, um, hats off to you, sir, and hats off to, uh, um, to the family for, uh, for saving that memory.
1: Indeed, you know, rest in peace to him, and thank you for, A, your service, and B, for keeping this in pen and paper, and thank you again to Brennan Moore for posting this online, and it would be great to see more from this man's personal memoirs. And with that... That brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka.
2: Oh, sorry, it was a blast. And I want to go ahead and give a shout-out to a friend of the show, uh, Mr. Jeff Notkin, who I believe started uh, uh, the STEM Journals. I believe it's seen um, in the Arizona area on Cox 7. Um, but it's also available online, and I believe if you've got a Roku box, you could also go ahead and take a look at it. So I would encourage you folks uh, to go ahead and do so. And, uh, a, a huge shout out, uh, and thank you to the folks over at astronomy FM that still continue to support us and still continue to air talking space. Thanks a whole bunch.
1: Yes, indeed. Again, Jeff knock hosting season two of STEM Journal is available on Cox seven. There's also an iPhone and Android app as well as available. As you mentioned, if you have a Roku box, uh, and that is Sundays at seven and at 9 PM Arizona time. Uh, arizona time is more like gmt to me and that i still don't understand it so uh <laughs> good luck converting that because they don't do daylight savings and it's a whole big thing uh, thank you as well for joining us mark ratterman
0: so much to say so little time so until next time
1: <laughs> indeed we will continue with lots more good stuff next time and we hope you'll be there with us but until then as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are